Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Wills Wilde. Would you believe that he actually lives up to that name? Being the man to coin the phrase, life imitates art, it's not a shock that his life imitates, well, art. Hello, and welcome to The Zed Files. My name is Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Wills Wilde, and I'm here to talk about history. Not all history, just the history I want. And today, I want to talk about Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Wills Wilde. Oh my god, I need to stop. Let me just start by asking you how your day is going. I hope it's good. If it's bad, don't worry, this this will make it better. Actually, it might not, it's a really sad story. To be honest, I don't really have any real reasons for this episode. It was just sort of a weird week where I had no idea what I wanted to do, and then so I did this. But like I said, he kind of surpasses expectations, and he has this like very cinematic life almost. Like, I'm, I'm surprised that Hollywood hasn't jumped on this. I mean, it's really gay, so maybe I'm not that surprised. Well, in wake of Hollywood starting to care about queer stories, I would say it's coming. Okay, this is so off topic. And we all know saying that Hollywood cares about queer stories is a bit misleading. In wake of Hollywood realizing they can make money from queer stories. Okay, but really the only real reason that I'm doing this is because I recently read The Picture of Dorian Gray which is Mr. Wilde's only novel. And I was, I was left feeling intrigued, so here we go. Oscar Finnegal O'Flattery Wills Wilde was born on October 16th of 1854 in Dublin, Ireland, to parents William Wilde and Jane Francesca Elgie. Quick biography on these two Victorians. Wilde's dad was a certified DILF. By the time William Wilde was 28, he had graduated, received a medical degree, and was a practicing doctor. He had written two books. He had been appointed medical advisor to the Irish 1851 census. Oh, and completed a voyage to Madeira, Tenerife, North Africa, and the Middle East. I'm, I'm just going to chalk this immense success at a very young age up to things being really easy for white men in the 19th century. But... Listen to this, okay? In 1843, when the medical data from the census that he was consulted on was released, it contained revolutionary data that had not been collected in any other country at the time. And so he was appointed to become the commissioner to the next three consecutive censuses. And then, because he was good at his job, he was knighted in 1864. So really, I should be referring to him as Sir William Wilde. But you know, he's a really successful Victorian man, so probably a dick, right? Like, he must be racist, classist, something, right? In 1844, living in Dublin, he wanted to help the city's poor population, so he built St. Mark Ophthalmic Hospital at entirely his own expense. He literally paid for the opening of a hospital for the Irish working class. Dilf, man. Okay, but for real, he wasn't all perfect. He had three bastard children born out of, get this, wedlock. The sinner! Oh, wait. Wait, he provided financial support for all three? Paying for their educations? Oh. Well, he still had sex before he got married. That is unforgivable. Out of Henry, Emily, and Mary Wilson, his three bastard children. Two of them, Mary and Emily, were raised by his brother and sadly died together in a fire at the ages of 22 and 24. 
So, you know, that solves that problem. Henry the third bastard did not die in the fire, and he went on to follow in his father's footsteps, becoming a doctor. Secondly, Wilde's mother, who quite frankly restored my faith in humanity, Francesca Elgi. Just listen to this. She garnered attention in 1846 because she wrote revolutionary poems under the pseudonym Suprenza, which to my understanding is a Latin word meaning hope, if I pronounce that right. She did so for a weekly Irish newspaper for two years, but amidst the famine and the revolution, the office was raided and had to close, ending her career as a radical Irish poet. But she was like just an incredibly talented woman. She was a gifted linguist with working knowledge of all major European languages, so she went on to work as a translator. In fact, Oscar Wilde would later reflect on her translation of Wilhelm Meinhold's gothic horror novel, Sidonia the Sorceress, drawing on elements of it for the inspiration for some of his darker work. So, yeah, she's really cool. Honestly, nothing about her is bad. She doesn't have any bastard children. The prude. After marrying William, the couple had three children. The oldest, William Willie, named for his father in 1852, then Oscar in 1854, and then finally, in 1857, a daughter named Isola with the middle name Emily, and so she went by that. However, tragically, Emily died of a sudden fever only 10 years later. Oscar, age 13, was profoundly affected by this loss, and for his entire life would carry around a lock of her hair in a sealed and decorative envelope. I, I can't decide if that's really beautiful and like touching, or is it a little weird? Is it kind of creepy? No, it's nice, it's nice, right? Oh, uh, well, anyway, Oscar and his older brother Willie both attended elementary, middle, and senior school at Portora Royal School, where Oscar excelled at studying classics. He was so successful that after graduation, he was awarded a scholarship to Trinity College Dublin, where once again, he did particularly well in his classics courses. In fact, he was so successful that following his graduation from Trinity, he was awarded another scholarship, this one to Magdalen College in Oxford. As is usually the case, his career and notoriety really began to take off during his education at Oxford. It was during this time that he wrote and published his first poem, Ravenna. It did well, and he was awarded the Newgate Prize for it. However, the most influential and perhaps important thing to happen during his time was the death of his father on April 19th of 1876. I think that in honor of Sir William Wilde, we should all have a moment of silence for the loss of such an inspirational man. Perfect. William's death left the family in financial trouble. Luckily, Oscar's oldest brother was able to pay the family's mortgages and support them. But then he died suddenly just a year later. And is it just me or does everyone seem like they're dying? Well, at least Oscar was thriving at Oxford. But let's jump forward to his graduation. He goes to live with his friend, Frank Miles, a popular portrait painter, and begins to work on what would become his first collection of poetry titled Poems to be published in 1881. Upon its initial release, it received mixed reviews from critics, but it significantly moved Oscar's career forward. And in December of that same year, he sailed to New York to give a series of lectures. The 50 lecture long tour was meant to last four months, but in true Oscar Wilde fashion, it ended up containing 140 lectures, all in the span of 260 days, covering both Canada and America. The lectures performed were on aestheticism, Let's talk about that. 
When discussing Oscar Wilde, you need to talk about the art movement of which he partook. This is especially true considering how influential a role Oscar came to play in this movement. These days, he's practically the face of it. But what is aestheticism? Let me share with you my limited understanding. It began in a small way around 1860 in the houses of radical young artists. It was an exploration of a new way of living, one that defied the, well, let's say, regrettable artistic standard of the age. Over the next two decades, it steadily grew in popularity, attracting everyone from architects to philosophers, but what exactly is it? Well, it's hard to pin down, but the idea was that, unlike before, aestheticism prioritized pure beauty. It became synonymous with the phrase, art for art's sake, standing in stark contrast to the materialism of the 19th century. First and foremost, this movement belonged to painters, but it spread quickly to all other mediums of art. And looking back now, there was definitely an element of performance that went along with it. Think Oscar Wilde's velvet suits and witty persona. It was almost bittersweet, though. It reveled in human emotions, in a wistful longing and lovesickness, all amidst, or maybe cloaked, by happiness and eccentricity. As a style, think elaborate, elusive built on the pillars of a love of going overboard. All things wild became truly the face of, both in his time and today. Aestheticism was really about experiencing life and not letting yourself become bogged down with the mundane. It would have you believe that no moments of potential passion should be allowed to pass by unseized. It was for this reason that it often crossed the line into decadence, pretentiousness. And well, it could just be really silly too. But it also liked to see itself as a movement for everyone. It didn't want its influence to reach no further than the elite. The true essence of aestheticism was a movement that reformed the way in which we saw beauty. It aimed to infuse beauty into the everyday life. So Oscar Wilde sailed across the ocean blue to talk about this very concept. Let's remember that at this point, he's only got one poetry collection out. So while he's... I guess up and coming in the UK, he's by no means anywhere near the height of his career just yet. He's doing this tour with the intention of generating further acclaim and notoriety. Famously, after arriving at customs, he announced that he had, quote, nothing to declare but his genius. But the American press could be at times hostile. Oscar Wilde appeared on their shores dressed in velvet, silk, with a very European outlook on beauty and art. But Oscar Wilde, true to himself, was not deterred, and for just 12 short months he attracted Americans from all walks of life to the allure of aestheticism. During his tour, he would also squeeze in time to meet with famous American artists and intellectuals, such as Henry Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Walt Whitman. He also arranged for his play, Vera, to be staged the following year in New York. Then, immediately on his return to Europe, he spent three months in Paris writing a tragedy commissioned by the actress Mary Anderson. And then once he finished it, she didn't like it and turned it down. Which is just funny, because he must have been like, dude, I spent three months on this. And then following that catastrophic failure, he decided to tour Europe, similar how he did America. But instead of talking about aestheticism, he decided to talk about, get this, America. So he went to America to lecture about aesthetics and then came back to lecture about America. Full circle right there. 
The next milestone in Wilde's life would have to be his marriage to Constance Lloyd on May 29th of 1884. She was four years his junior and the daughter of a prominent barrister. She was very smart, well-read, and well-versed in several European languages, and was a baddie bee who spoke her mind. And honestly, if I didn't know anything about Oscar Wilde, I'd say this was a good match, but because of the one thing that we all know is going to come out soon about Oscar Wilde, she deserved more. Quickly, they had two sons, Cyril and Vivian. Vivian? I don't It's spelled with Y's? It's weird? I don't know. Um, aesthetics. In 1885 and then 1886, respectively. To Oscar Wilde's credit, though, after marrying, he took an actual job in order to support his family, which was not going to be able to live off his one poetry collection titled Poems. He worked revitalizing the magazine Woman's World from 1887 to 1889. He would then go into the most creative period of his life, and also the most destructive. I won't list everything he went on to publish over the next few years, but I will talk about the more relevant ones. For example, in the early 1890s, he published his first and only novel, titled The Picture of Dorian Gray. Its first publishing was in an American magazine, but it quickly gained quite a lot of backlash for its morally suspicious ending. The book centers around a man, Dorian Gray, who was able to preserve his youthful good looks by damning a painting of him to reflect his aging and worsening habits. Essentially, he stays pretty while the painting gets ugly. So as Dorian Gray no longer needs to worry about the burden of bad deeds, he slips into a double life, remaining presentable, pleasant, and proper in the eyes of the British upper class, but below the surface he becomes a cruel narcissist, led astray by his comrade Lord Henry Wotton. All this to say that upon its initial publishing, Wilde left the ending rather open and up for interpretation. There was no direct condemnation of Dorian Gray's behavior, and this is why it was so controversial. But Oscar Wilde, ever the people pleaser, just decided to add six new chapters, and then it was officially published the following year. The reason I'm bringing this up and speaking on it in so much detail is because the book will go on to play a key role in Wilde's later trials for its quote, homoerotic themes. Okay, so in the early 1890s, blah blah blah, his first play opens, it was successful critically and financially, so he writes more plays, blah 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 blah, they all did really well, blah 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 blah. Alas, the interesting stuff. So in the summer of 1891, Oscar Wilde met an undergraduate at Magdalen College, Oxford, a man, or maybe I should say boy, named Lord Alfred Douglas, although he went by Bosey. Bosey was well acquainted with Oscar Wilde's work, and he would say himself that he was a fan. Bosey himself was an aspiring poet and the son of the Marquess of Queensbury, so he was an aristocrat. The point is, shortly after meeting, the two fell head over heels for each other, becoming very close, striking up, well, to quote J.K. Rowling on Dumbledore and Grindelwald, an intense sexual relationship, despite the 16-year age gap and the whole Oscar Wilde being married thing. But here's the thing. For multiple reasons, the main perpetrator being homophobia, I think a lot of details about Oscar and Bosey's relationship have been blown way out of proportion, or just ignored. These days, Bosey has a really bad reputation as kind of a grump, and just like a dick. And honestly, I'm not gonna argue with that, because old British men usually are, but... You, you know what I mean? When he was younger, it probably wasn't the case. Additionally, the age gap, despite being huge, Bosey was still of legal age, and he stated himself in his autobiography 
that he would pen much later in his life, the relationship was completely consensual. As later said by Bozy himself, the two really did love each other. And you'll see how it plays out, but they do a lot to try and stay together. It's actually really sad. I also want to acknowledge that just because Bozy says it's consensual doesn't mean there wasn't still some power imbalance being taken advantage of, but I want to be totally frank here. If anyone was taken advantage of, it looks like it might have been Oscar, but I don't know. We're gonna get more into Oscar Wilde's sex life soon. Actually, we're not gonna get too into it because I know who's listening to these and there's some lines I don't want to cross, so you know, hold your horses. Let's get back to the story though. Okay, cut to four years later. It's 1895 and the two are still together. Bozy's father, aware of what's going on, is absolutely outraged. So he leaves a calling card for Wilde with the porter at the Pirate Albemarle Club in London. The card reads, For Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite. Let me tell you, this was a PR nightmare for Wilde. It's important to remember that homosexuality was strictly illegal in the UK and would remain so up until the 1960s. So to get a sense of how legitimate this was as a problem for Wilde, his friends were urging him to flee to France, at least until everyone calmed down, France having decriminalized homosexuality during the French Revolution back in 1791. So it would have been safe. Oscar Wilde, though, did not follow this advice, opting to go on the offense instead. He decided to sue the Marquess for defamation, taking him to court. Sadly, this, this is not going to go well for poor old Oscar. It's sort of like the beginning of the end. So amid a storm of newspaper coverage, the court case opened on April 3rd, 1895, and it went pretty poorly. The main problem being that as the allegations made by the Marquess of Queensbury were true, they couldn't really count as defamatory. So you can imagine that wasn't Wilde's desired outcome. The trial sort of took a turn and set Wilde up to be put on the stand himself, which is exactly what happened following the conclusion of the defamation trial, which the Queensbury's defense had approached by trying to prove Wilde was gay. It ended up leaving Wilde really vulnerable. And so on April 26th of 1895, he was put on trial himself. His friends once again begged him to flee to France, but he decided to stay and stand trial, pleading not guilty on 25 counts of gross indecency. The trial dug up a whole bunch of dirty laundry. It dove deeply into Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, pointing to its queer coding as evidence. Additionally, the opposition accused Wilde of soliciting 12 other young men to commit sodomy. Okay, here's what I've been waiting to talk about. I'll keep this brief, but I have some opinions. First of all, it was shockingly difficult to even find an article which made that statement, that even addressed Wilde's thing for younger, much younger men, which is very problematic, as it would be easy for someone to completely miss that. And I would say that that's problematic, because when discussing historical figures with a lot of influence, it's important to me that they're not romanticized. We need to acknowledge their fuck-ups and flaws. If not, I think it's the same thing as erecting statues of racist colonizers. However, all this being said, there's another part of me wondering about the famous stereotype of gay men being pedophiles. And I have to wonder if Oscar's sex life was blown out of proportion because of this. There's discourse on the topic, and I don't really know which side I'm on, because both really suck. On the one hand, you're downplaying homophobia, and on the other, you're potentially downplaying pedophilia. But let me tell you what my general consensus is. Oscar Wilde's romantic interests were definitely, definitely questionable, and 
at times seriously concerning. There's no doubt about that. But I think at the same time, homophobia blew them out of proportion. The point is that I'm not here to give him a pass. He made bad choices when it came to sexual partners, but he also, no doubt, was a victim of homophobia then, and then over a hundred years of more homophobia. So I don't think it's far-fetched to say that it's likely been blown out of proportion, and I think that he at least deserves somebody acknowledging that. Sorry, I said this so I would keep this brief. Oops. The point is, yes, he was a pedophile, but not as big of a pedophile as everyone thinks. Okay. Moving on. The trial soon ended, unable to reach a verdict, but three weeks later, Wilde was retried where he was convicted of gross indecency and received two years of hard labor, the maximum sentence allowed for the crime. Little piece of trivia here, gross indecency, which was the criminal offense for doing gay stuff, was actually only applicable to men. Doing lesbian things was actually never made illegal, at least in England. That May, he was taken to prison to serve his sentence, where he was put to work picking oakum, a substance used in shipbuilding. Eventually, he was transferred to London, where he remained until his release in 1897. During his prison sentence, his health seriously suffered, and it would continue to do so following his release. But let's talk about his release. Three months prior, his wife obtained a legal separation and formal end to any responsibilities he may have had to his sons and took them away to Switzerland, where they would never see Oscar again. After much deliberation with Oscar, although not directly because she refused to talk to him, she agreed to pay him an annual allowance of 150 euros a year, on the condition that he didn't get in touch with her or their children without her permission. The only other condition being that he, quote, could not associate in the future with any person deemed disreputable in the eyes of his own lawyer. This was an indirect reference to Bosey. Following Oscar's release, he finally went to France, where he stayed in Dieppe with his two friends, Robert Ross and Reggie Turner, both of which were also gay. He stayed in Dieppe under the name Sebastian Melmoth. He desperately wanted to see his children, but Constance kept him at arm length. Soon after his arrival in Dieppe, he gave Ross a 50,000-word letter to Bosey that he had finished in his prison cell. It was not complimentary, and he was aware that Bozy would probably destroy it, so he made sure that multiple copies were made. Bozy did exactly that, not even reading the whole letter. The letter is another reason why Bozy gets a bad rep. I think it's important to understand that it was written by a man in serious pain while in solitary confinement. Regardless, Bozy and Oscar actually began to talk again through Ross, who disliked Bozy. But the odds were stacked against the two, as the Marquess of Queensbury had sent detectives to monitor the movements of Wilde and Bosey, trying to keep them apart. At the end of August in 1897, Bosey and Oscar would reunite. Oscar's biographer, Richard Alman, would describe this event as Oscar's second fall, and in his own autobiography, Bosey described this encounter as such. Poor Oscar cried when I met him at the station, and I did the same. We walked about all day arm in arm or hand in hand, and we were perfectly happy. We settled that when I got back to Naples, about six weeks later, he was to join me there. And they did just that. In September, they rented a villa, trying desperately to live together. It was living here that Oscar penned what would be his final work, The Ballad of Reading Jail, about the importance of reforming the prison system. Funny how we're still having that conversation. 
all the while Bozy was writing his own poems. Sadly, this bliss wouldn't last. Even with Oscar's allowance from Constance and Bozy's allowance from his mother, they seemed to be permanently broke. And to make matters worse, both Constance and Bozy's mother threatened to cut off funds unless they separated. She even offered to send Wilde 200 euros if he promised never to live with Bozy again. It's unclear how long this stint in Naples lasted, but its end was disastrous for Wilde's. He wrote to Ross that after prison he struggled greatly when he was alone. The rest of Wilde's life was short and uneventful. He spent his final years traveling Europe, living in cheap hotels, and spending most of his time in bars. It's true, Wilde could have moved to London and regained his respect, becoming a literary bachelor or something, but he was so damaged by prison that the great personality that had inspired his earlier works and gotten himself in so much trouble was long gone. He died in 1900 succumbing to acute meningitis brought on by an ear infection. He never saw his children or Bosie again. Bosie married a woman named Olive Custance and had one child. Going on to write poetry and about his time with Oscar, he died in 1945. I hate to end here because it's pretty bleak, but there's nothing more to say. A classic tragedy, if you ask me, doomed from the start. Well, source time, guys. Certainly the best article I read was about the aftermath of Wilde's time in prison. It was really unique and goes into great detail, so I would recommend that. There's also one that dives into his relationships um, and into everything we know about his sexual escapades, if you're interested in that side of him, but it's a little weird if you are. All my sources will be linked. They are pretty good, so I recommend them all. Thank you so much for listening. This is the end. Sorry to end on such a sad note, but thank you anyway. See you next week. Goodbye!